What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. I'm Rachel Wadham, and welcome to Worlds Awaiting, helping children and parents explore the worlds of literacy. Today, we'll be exploring the worlds of classroom practices, the autistic spectrum, and an author's journey. Our first guest is English professor Dewan Combs, and we'll discuss classroom practices. Then we'll talk with John Cox, a professor and psychologist, about the autistic spectrum. Our last guest will be author Dustin Hansen, and we'll chat about his journey. Before we leave you, I'll step around the librarian's table with librarians from around Utah to talk about children, books, and life. Along with our interviews, we'll have a reading of My Father's Dragon and hear some book trivia. But before all that, let's take a glimpse into my world. As an educator, one of the things that people like to talk to me about is the fact that many schools don't teach cursive anymore. Personally, the demise of cursive in schools has been of very little importance to me since through a series of unfortunate events, I never learned how to write cursive. And even today, the only thing I write with cursive letters is my very crazy signature. But even though I'm personally ambivalent to cursive writing does not mean that I still do not advocate for writing by hand. At a recent conference where several children's book authors attended, I was surprised to find that many of them still do a great deal of their writing by hand. In fact, I realized that I do quite a bit of my own writing with a pen and paper first before I turn to the computer. So it seems that in the adult world, writing by hand is still alive and well. But does that mean it should be in our kids' world? Research seems to indicate that yes, it should. Studies have shown that writing by hand activates many regions of the brain related to memory and comprehension. This means that we may be able to learn things better when we write them by hand. But while we can still champion writing by hand, we can't make this an either or occurrence. Learning to create text fluently with a keyboard is also a significant skill. In fact, research shows that there are correlations between handwriting and keyboarding skills. So it seems that instead of focusing on one or the other, the benefit would be to focus on helping children to develop good written communication skills, both by hand and with a computer. Because here at Rachel's World, we know that being able to use the written word in print and digitally to interact with the world is a very positive thing. Rachel's World As the world is constantly changing, so are the spaces we inhabit within the world. Classrooms don't always look exactly the same as they did when you or I were in school. We're in studio today with Dewan Combs, an English professor here at BYU, to take a glimpse into what is going on in today's classrooms. Welcome, Dewan. Thanks. Let's chat a little bit about classrooms and teaching and, and literacy in classrooms. I, I love to chat with teachers not only because 
we have teachers out there who are listening and maybe can pick up a great few tips for their classrooms, but also just to help parents uh, who are listening understand what are the contexts of our classrooms, and particularly since a great uh, majority of literacy for their teens particularly are built in a classroom situation, what are the kinds of things that are important for them to understand as parents that are that are going on in the classroom so we can be more collaborative and, and help support this amazing thing? So to start out, let's talk a little bit about literacy in a classroom, particularly for adolescents. What are some of those best practices that we think we should see when we're teaching literacy or particularly reading to adolescents or other readers? So I think that if I were a parent, I would want to make sure that my students, um, regardless of which English class they were in, or I mean, really social studies or science, that whatever they were learning, they were really being immersed in a lot of different literacy experiences. Um, Sometimes we think that school should be the same way it was when we were students. And that can, you know, like if you're, you sometimes parents feel alarmed, like, oh, my kids aren't reading the same things I read. They, how will they be exposed to this cultural body of knowledge that everyone should know? But we live in a very diverse world. And And there's not a set of books that every student needs to be exposed to as they're going through school. What we're trying to do now to prepare them for this world where there's no way you could internalize all the information that you need to internalize is teach them skills and strategies so that they can go out and read anything that they want. And so I think that um, asking yourself – is is the classroom where my student is working, is it a place where there are a lot of di- different types of literacy experiences available to them is really key. Um, what some of those should look like may be, I mean, the class might be reading a whole novel together, but a lot of schools can't afford enough books for every kid to bring this book home. And so your kids should be doing outside reading going to the library or finding a book off the teacher's shelves that's of interest to them because we don't just learn to become better readers by reading things that we like, but that's one way we strengthen our reading skills and we um, grow our interest by reading um, a lot of different things. And so um, sometimes teachers uh, will set up like book clubs or literature circles in their classrooms where kids can choose among three or four different books that deal with the same topic um, as other books that are being read in the class but are more geared towards their interest, their ability level, or, you know, something that will challenge them. And so realizing those are things that didn't happen as much when we were students, but those are legitimate practices that are aimed at not just helping the whole class, but individualizing instruction toward different students. So I think those are some things that they could be aware of. Yeah, let's let's build on that conception okay. of literature circles, because I, I think that's a wonderful technique. And I think it's one that m- parents may not be as familiar with, mm-hmm. because I mean, it, it's a relatively new kind of conception. Right. So describe for us, what would be a literature circle? And, and why would a teacher use it? So there's probably, I mean, different people would respond to that in different ways. But to me, whether it's a literature circle or a book club, you have a small group of students that are taking a text and not expecting the teacher to ask comprehension questions about it and to apply the strategies for them. But you're putting the literature in the students' hands and then expecting them to apply the strategies that they've learned. And that can be hard for students because you want to make sure you're getting the right answer and you want to make sure that you're covering all the symbols and the themes. But we learn how to do that, not 
because we sit in a classroom where someone tells us what the symbols and the themes are, but we learn to do that by unpacking text and becoming practicing close reading skills. And so literature circles, are that's one approach to help students be able to do that because they're reading text, they're identifying important elements, and then they're talking, they're coming to class and talking about these things with other students, or they're online talking about them with people. And um, that's helping them apply these skills and these strategies and the things that they don't pick up on somebody else in their group does. And so it's also brings in the social element of learning that really appeals to a lot of kids and is much more of the types of reality that we're all faced with when we're in the the real world, right? And we want school to prepare them for that. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, that seems obvious, right? Yeah. And, and I love this sense of unpacking text. You made mm-hmm. that statement. And I really think that that's what we are kind of moving to, particularly in English education, mm-hmm. we're moving to this sense of instead of st- standing up there and saying, this is what you should think of the text and read in the Great Gatsby yeah. means this. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you can regurgitate that on the test, then you're good. Right. It's more about taking any kind of text and really unpacking it. So can you describe for us what what that concept of unpacking or what does that skill set look like that we're trying to teach students? Yeah, so I think that students that struggle sometimes think, well, the answer is in the text, and if I can't find it, I'm dumb. But really, very few questions that we ask about text are those types of read and regurgitate questions that you can answer while you're doing your homework and watching TV at the same time. Really, what you we want them to do is to look at passages of text and to go back to them multiple times for authentic purposes to see those things that are in between the lines or that are in the text but we may not see on the first read. Um, When I talk to high school students about it, I think about like they can find a movie that they like and they can watch it 10 times and see different things in it and maybe have new theories about why the producer did certain things or why the actors, you know, represented this character in a certain way. But you can do the same thing with novels, right? Every time you read a novel, different symbols pop out to you and different themes come out. And the only reason why your teacher knows all those themes is either because their teachers told them about those or they've been in this text seven or eight times. And so those things are coming out to them. And so our goal is to get them to read text repeatedly to be able to pull this out, but to also question the text and to pay attention to those reoccurring ideas that are in there. Um, We want to help them learn how to mark text so that they can come back to these key elements or they can see these kinds of patterns and they can, you know, authentically wonder about these words that are in there that they don't recognize. And so we want to provide them with the most authentic reading experiences as possible. And that's what that's what readers do, right? We find a text and then we we go back to it multiple times to to find meaning. I love that sense of going back to it multiple times because I think one of the things that I found particularly with parents when they see kids going back to a text over and over again or a familiar favorite, right? Mm -hmm. You know, when we talk about adolescent literature in recent years, you know, how many people have read Harry Potter multiple times or Twilight multiple times and they just go back and back. And I have parents come to me all the time. Oh, they need to move on. They need to. And I'm like, yeah, that will probably happen. But there is this sense of revisiting it makes us have a deeper experience with a text. Right. Well, and not just have that deeper experience, but 
our lives change and who we are changes. And so the way you approach The Great Gatsby as an 11th grader will be much different than the way you'll approach it as a 31-year-old in a relationship. In a much better, in a much better experience. Right. I will say as 11 years old, I had a horrible experience with yeah. The Great Gatsby. But as an adult, I love it. It's sure. a wonderful book. Well, yeah. and even with Harry Potter, um, a lot of my students have grown up on Harry Potter and they love it. But we invited some of them to reread it with this developing teacher lens, right? If you're going to be a teacher in a classroom, what can you learn about teaching and education, whether it's what you should or shouldn't do from reading this. And a lot of them like paid attention to ideas that they never even considered when they were 11 years old or different perspectives. And so there's always value in revisiting a text. Of course, you want to read new things, but there's nothing wrong with going back to some that you're familiar with also because you can learn new things every time you read them. I think that's such an important point and and something that really just kind of opens up this scope for us of of what it means to be a critical reader mm-hmm. and and this is for, you know, novels and for nonfiction texts and all of these types of things. And I think particularly in this day and age uh, that we live in being a critical reader really is so essential. <laughs> It's true. To what we do. No. So why? Why is that so essential to us now? Why is this critical reading something we have to understand? So I um, used to tell my students that they um, they needed to think about a couple different things when the, when they were reading. But one of them was, what is this text saying to me and why does it matter? And who's trying to say this to me? Because we know – I mean, you can talk about different – theories of power and positioning and all of that. But a lot of people want us to believe certain things, whether it's just because they want to convince us to purchase something or because they want to change the way we're thinking about ideas in the world. And so it's so important for students that we have now to realize that not every text is written with these altruistic purposes, and they need to be questioning these texts. They question what adults say all of the time. So why would they not question what they're reading, what they see on the internet, what they hear on the radio? Um, They need to be questioning and seeking out answers to those questions, because if you just believe everything you read, then you're in trouble, right? And I think that's interesting, because there's so much of that attitude where if you read it somewhere, it's true, Mm -hmm. right? And and it, it used to be we had, you know, packages of information that we had some sense of their trustworthiness or mm-hmm. some sense of their context. But now with so much information on the Internet, it's all just there. And it, it's hard to really understand. And sometimes the markers of trustworthiness of where it came from or who wrote it or, you know, their sources are so masked that it's just become more difficult to right. make those decisions. Right. Well, and we I was talking to some colleagues the other day about this because – you used to be able to assume if it came from a certain source, it was true. But sometimes now you have to like wait a couple days to make sure that what was reported initially is really, you know, the whole story that's coming out. And so I, this is the world that we live in. And so it's really important for students to have their eyes open to that. And that doesn't mean they shouldn't believe anything and they need to question everyone, but they do need to be critical um, in terms of what they're consuming and what they're believing um, so that they don't be like start to live in these insular worlds where they only read things that reinforce their ideas because that kind of creates this society where other people are wrong and I'm always right and those people are bad. And that's not really how democracies function. Like we learn from other people and the truth comes out in between these conversations or compromises has to happen, right? 
That's a wonderful way to look at the world. I appreciate all that you have shown us today, Duan, about the wonderful way that we can engage our students and support them to become really critical, engaged readers throughout their whole lives. Thank you. Thank you. Duan is an English professor at BYU. Now it's time for story time with a reading of My Father's Dragon by Ruth Stiles Gannett. Wild Island is practically cut in two by a very wide and muddy river, said the cat. This river begins near one end of the island and flows into the ocean at the other. Now the animals there are very lazy, and they used to hate having to go all the way around the beginning of this river to get to the other side of the island. It made visiting inconvenient and mail delivery slow, particularly during the Christmas rush. Crocodiles could have carried passengers and mail across the river, but crocodiles are very moody and not the least bit dependable, and are always looking for something to eat. They don't care if the animals have to walk around the river, so that's just what the animals did for many years. But what does all this have to do with airplanes? asked my father, who thought the cat was taking an awfully long time to explain. Be patient, Elmer, said the cat, as she went on with the story. One day, about four months before I arrived on Wild Island, a baby dragon fell from the low-flying cloud onto the bank of the river. He was too young to fly very well, and besides, he had bruised one wing quite badly, so he couldn't get back to his cloud. The animals found him soon afterwards, and everybody said, Why, this is just exactly what we've needed all these years. They tied a big rope around his neck and waited for the wing to get well. This was going to end all of their crossing-the-river troubles. "'I've never seen a dragon,' said my father. "'Did you see him? How big is he?' "'Oh, yes, indeed, I saw the dragon. In fact, we became great friends,' said the cat. "'I used to hide in the bushes and talk to him when nobody was around. "'He's not a very big dragon, about the size of a large black bear, "'although I imagine he's grown quite a bit since I left.' He's got a long tail and yellow and blue stripes. His horn and eyes at the bottoms of his feet are bright red, and he has gold-colored wings. Oh, how wonderful, said my father. What did the animals do with him when his wing got well? They started training him to carry passengers, and even though he is just a baby dragon, they work him all day and all night, too, sometimes. They make him carry loads that are much too heavy, and if he complains, they twist his wings and beat him. He's always tied to a stake on a rope, just long enough to go across the river. His only friends are the crocodiles, who say hello to him once a week if they don't forget. Really, he's the most miserable animal I've ever come across. When I left, I promised I'd try to help him some day, although I couldn't see how. The rope around his neck is about the biggest, toughest rope you can imagine. With so many knots, it would take days to untie them all. Anyway, when you were talking about airplanes, you gave me a good idea. Now I'm quite sure that if you're able to rescue the dragon, which wouldn't be the least bit easy, he'd let you ride him most anywhere, provided you were nice to him, of course. How about trying it? "'Oh, I'd love to,' said my father, and he was so angry at his mother for being rude to the cat that he didn't feel the least bit sad about running away from home for a while. That very afternoon, my father and the cat went down to the docks to see about ships going to the island of Tangerina. They found out that a ship would be sailing the next week, so right away they started planning to rescue the dragon.' The cat was a great help in suggesting things for my father to take with him, and she told him everything she knew about Wild Island. Of course, she was too old to go along. Everything had to be kept very secret, so when they found or bought anything to take on the trip, they hid it behind a rock in the park. 
The night before my father sailed, he borrowed his father's knapsack, and he and the cat packed everything very carefully. He took chewing gum, two dozen pink lollipops, a package of rubber bands, black rubber boots, a compass, a toothbrush, and a tube of toothpaste. Six magnifying glasses, a very sharp jackknife, a comb and a hairbrush, seven hair ribbons of different colors, an empty grain bag with a label saying cranberry, some clean clothes, and enough food to last my father while he was on the ship. He couldn't live on mice, so he took 25 peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and six apples, because that's all the apples he could find in the pantry. When everything was packed, my father and the cat went down to the docks to the ship. A night watchman was on duty, so while the cat made loud, queer noises to distract his attention, my father ran over the gangplank onto the ship. He went down into the hold and hid among some bags of wheat. The ship sailed early the next morning. There are so many challenges that our children face in life, and particularly if they face a disability, there are often some immense challenges. We are so excited to have Dr. John Cox today in the studio to talk with us a little bit about one specific type of challenge, and that is students or children who are on the autism spectrum. Welcome today to talk with us, Dr. Cox. We're so glad to have you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So, Dr. Cox, you are a uh, counselor in the Counseling and Psychology Center here at BYU, and presumably you work a lot with students with on the autism spectrum. So describe in general for people who may not be familiar or as familiar with these uh, this particular kind of spectrum, what, what are some of the challenges that students face or children face who are on the autism spectrum? Yeah, so... Um, children and adolescents, even adults who are on the autism spectrum, experience uh, a, a combination or a constellation of different symptoms that can range in uh, in severity from uh, mild to severe. And so, there's a, a wide um, a wide variety of uh, different ways that it can manifest itself. But in general, the the hallmarks of autism tend to be difficulties with understanding and communicating socially. Uh, so understanding like nonverbal communication, understanding even voice tone and, and kind of the subtleties of uh, communication. Uh, and social interactions can be very difficult. They also experience difficulties with, uh, I like to call it cognitive rigidity, which means they have a hard time uh, adjusting to surprises and uh, kind of thinking uh, fluidly or flexibly on the fly when there's, when there's uh, challenges that spring up that can really throw them off or, you know, uh, changes to their schedule can be difficult. And so it's hard to shift gears, so to speak. Um, many uh, individuals on the spectrum have uh, interests that are uh, either st- like more strong than most neurotypical individuals, sometimes a little bit uh, different than uh, neurotypical individuals and can focus uh, specifically on very uh, – interesting, different topics. 
Um, and then uh, executive functioning can be a difficulty as well. And executive functioning is your ability to uh, manage your uh, decisions, um, concentrate, focus, and, and um, manage your time in a helpful and useful way. That that's a wonderful explanation, and I love how concrete that is, and and just shows the scope of challenges that students on the spectrum face. I know that there's a lot of families out there that have students on the spectrum or children on the spectrum, and they're dealing with that. And I I really hope that they're getting great support from uh, psychiatrists and psychologists and and other kinds of people in their lives. But one of the things that I think is really important, um, particularly for the the neurotypical population the kind of other side of the population, is really understanding how can we best be supportive and helpful to to children that are on the spectrum. And I think particularly as parents and concerned adults, helping our neurotypical children understand how to best interact, how to best approach students with this kind um, these kinds of challenges can not only make it better for the students who are facing the challenges and the students with autism, but also for our children who are neurotypical in order to help them see the world in a broader way and to interact with a brighter range of people. So what would you suggest? What are some ways that we can, as concerned adults with neurotypical children in our lives, help them to understand and interact with students or children who might be on the spectrum? Uh, this is something I'm actually pretty passionate about. I I care deeply about this topic um, because I've seen the pain that uh, students on the spectrum experience from past interactions with adults and other children or peers, uh, and and it it's painful for me to hear their experiences. I, based upon what I've heard, I think one of the most important things that adults and children, neurotypical children, can do is really understand that individuals with autism are people. And they are, they are real people with real hopes and dreams and desires. And, and they, they have the same aspirations and the same cares that the rest of us do. And, and when they are treated differently, it's really painful to them. It, it can be very hurtful to be treated differently than other people. And that doesn't mean that they don't need accommodations and they don't need help and support. But the way that we talk to people with disabilities oftentimes makes them feel like they're less of a person and makes them feel like they uh, don't deserve the same respect that we, the individuals that are neurotypical, uh, deserve. And and that is, I, I think, a, a really big problem. Oftentimes, people think that they're being helpful, but they're, they're, the way they talk to an individual with disability actually ends up being condescending and really hurtful. Yeah. I, just that very sense of building a culture in our families where we accept all people and mm-hmm. we understand that all people are people um, is, is so, so important that we have this basic understanding that everyone is is that way. I know particularly with students with autism, there can be some 
some concerning behaviors sometimes. I mean, there's sometimes great anger when they sometimes have those instances where things are changed mm-hmm. and they're not used to that. Absolutely. They can often, um, you know, have repetitive behaviors and those mm-hmm. types of things where, you know, they might be, you know, hitting themselves or something like that where they're trying to get themselves under control. And I think particularly with our children, seeing those kind of behaviors that look really odd to them mm-hmm. or that look really non-standard or that might be frightening to mm-hmm. them as as a child can be challenging. So how would we as, as concerned adults help our children kind of understand or deal with those kinds of behaviors when they are having a friend or um, someone in their life that, that has autism? Yeah, that's, that's a difficult one. Um, as I think w- it would be important to talk with your children about uh, making sure that you're safe, making sure that other people are safe and that uh, you know, nothing harmful is happening, and then allowing people space to do what they need to do or to experience what they need to experience uh, so that they can manage their time and emotions the way they need to. And and just because someone does something different than what we're used to doesn't mean that it's bad, doesn't mean that it's uh, 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 wrong. And, and so teaching children to be accepting of other people's ways of doing things, I think, can be beneficial, not just for interacting with individuals on the spectrum, but for everyone in our life. Oh, I I could not agree more. And I love this sense of really talking to our children and and having these kinds of discussions, because I think sometimes as parents, we either don't want to have these discussions, or these discussions are hard, or whatever, for whatever reason. And just being really honest and saying, oh, you know, your friend has this kind of this is how they relate to the world and this is the kinds of things that they need to do and and just helping having those conversations are a great thing so how do how do we start those kinds of hard conversations i mean (laughs) you know as a counselor how would you how would you recommend that we we start these kinds of maybe a little challenging conversations (laughs) well that I mean, there's two basic approaches, right? You can wait until an incident occurs and then use that as a nucleus to then start the conversation. Hey, when this happened, I saw this happening. Let's talk about what was going on and how you could approach it differently, right? That's one way. And the other way is, of course, uh, maybe a little more difficult, and that is having that conversation before anything has happened and just saying, there are some things I want to talk with you about. Let's talk about people with difficulties and and with differences and how we interact with them. Yeah. Well, for me, one of the ways I love doing that is reading some great books. Oh, that's of, true. Yeah, I, yeah, I didn't you know, even re- uh, think about that. But yeah, absolutely. but you know, and even just having those experiences, because I think you're right, if we have that experience and then talking about it is a great way, but sometimes another great way to kind of bring the experience up is to have some great books and we've got some really wonderful uh, children's books out now that really represent autism in a great way. So so that's one of one of the ways I recommend. But as we close up our conversation today, Dr. Cox, tell me one thing if if you could, you know, make the world perfect in in p- particularly for our students with autism and dealing with them, what what would you change? What would you do to make make the world better for them? Um I think I would uh want people to treat individuals on the spectrum 
as individuals and and allow them to feel not allow them but but help them to feel accepted for who they are so they don't have to try and act so neurotypical all the time because that's that's so draining for individuals on the spectrum yeah. to try and act normal because they believe that that's how their their only way their only hope of being accepted is to be as normal as possible i yeah. say that in quotes but um if they if we were able to have a society that was able to be inclusive and supportive and accepting of individuals on the spectrum as they are and so that they can express themselves because they they have great personalities they have great uh, hopes and dreams and, and ideas and a great approach to the world, they do things differently than neurotypicals sometimes, but it can be really enjoyable to to be with them and see them as they are. And, and to have a relationship with them is, I think, really rewarding. Well, here's for sharing your hope that we move towards a more inclusive, empathetic world, particularly for those students who are on the spectrum. Thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Cox. Thank you for having me. John Cox is a professor here at BYU and a licensed psychologist. Now, let's listen to some little or well-known book trivia. In Winnie the Pooh, Tigger often leaves with the phrase TTFN. What does this stand for? No idea. <laughs> TTFN. <sighs> um, I feel like I should know this. Winnie the Pooh is like my favorite. I have no idea. Till tally funny never. It's <laughs> a good enough answer. <laughs> ta ta for now. Oh, heck yeah. Ta ta for now. Uh,. Ta-ta for now. Which book was not written by Roald Dahl? James and the Giant Peach, Fantastic Mr. Fox, Coraline, or the BFG? Fantastic Mr. Fox. Fantastic Mr. Fox. Absolutely no idea, so I'm going to go with BFG. (laughs) Fantastic Mr. Fox. Coraline. 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 Uh, Coraline. Uh, (laughs) Coraline. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, who betrays the Pevensey children to the White Witch? Mr. Tumnus. No idea. Uh, the Seder? I don't know. Eeyore. Mr. Tumnus. Uh, Frank? Oh. Oh. It's not Peter, it's Edward, I think? Edmund. Edmund, obviously. How many books are in the series of unfortunate events? <laughs> no, no. One. Six. Uh, seven, final answer. Oh, yikes. Like, 13? Oof. Like, 13. <laughs> 13. Isn't it 13? Aren't there, like, 13? 13. Bingo. <laughs> We all have our own paths in life, and we can find inspiration in the journeys of the people around us. We're in studio today with Dustin Hansen, an author, illustrator, and game designer. Welcome. Thank you. 
You are an author and illustrator of various kinds of books. You write a fiction series and you also write nonfiction. So let's talk a little bit about how you came to this in your life. What what was it in your life that made you want to be an author and illustrator? I guess I've always been a liar. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that is so true. Yeah. <laughs> you have to be a good to be a good storyteller, you have to be a good liar. <laughs> right, like and, and I mean that's that's the brutal way to say it, but I I know I've always been a storyteller and, and I remember, you know, young age spinning some pretty big yarns to my parents. Um, and and they encouraged it. You know, I was lucky enough to be brought up in a really creative home, and they kind of thought, you know, they'd listen to the whole story and then say, "That's a really interesting story, but <laughs> like, you know, it's a story, <laughs> right?" <laughs> and and I think, you know, I look back at like the things that kind of inspired and kind of uh, really kind of lit my mind on fire. A lot of those things were story based, whether they were fiction or nonfiction. Um, you know, I remember third grade third grade bee honeybee project that I did that. I'm not kidding, for years stuck in my mind. You know, I was fascinated with bees. And that wasn't storytelling, right? That's truth. Well, I guess, yeah, it's still storytelling. Um, so I kind of had this split mind of being really interested in things that were historical and real and then also being in very interested in the opposite side of that, the completely fantastic. And, and I think even in my own personal art that really shows, you know, my first step into the art world was as a wildlife artist where – and a paleo artist where being as accurate as possible is the goal, right? Because it is a scientific endeavor as much as it is a visual endeavor. Um, and then on, this, on the other side of things, I was more than happy to draw spaceships and Star Wars clones, right? Um, so I've always kind of had that that dual side of really interested in, in, in reality and in nonfiction and, and very inspired by fiction. And they do kind of feed each other in some way. Um, so that's kind of where it started. I, I really – for me, it wasn't about books for years. It was about drawing and it was about using art as a storytelling medium or a device. And that really became what got me going, you know, drawing comics and, you know, silly things when I was young up up to drawing more fantasy-based things when I grew older and, and then being a concept artist or a visual development artist for the video game industry. All of those things kind of come from storytelling more than – maybe even more than art. So that seems to be kind of fundamentally where it came from. You're a storyteller yeah. and you like to tell stories in a wide range of mediums and words and games and text and all these kinds of other illustrations. So what made that transition maybe from that sense of telling for video games and for that kind of context and wanting to actually publish a book? How, how did that transition happen? Well, I think I, I know some specific times that, that it, some very deliberate things. I remember one time I was working uh, for a studio called T- Tiburon. Uh, they make the Madden football games um, in Florida. Um, and I was in Orlando. Um, there's a really, really good art school down there called Ringling School of Art and Design in Sarasota, Florida, which is like an hour and a half away. And at at EA, we recruited a lot of students from there. And so they invited me to come down as an art director and kind of tell them a little bit about what we do and in my path to getting into the games industry. And, and they asked me to bring some of my artwork with me and to bring some of the games that I'd worked on with me. So I, here I am walking in. I have fairly young kids at the time. I think my oldest was 12. My youngest was probably two. Um, and I'm walking and carrying this stack. And I've got some of my original art that I had created um, probably 10 years before then. Um, and, and then I've got a couple of video games stacked on top of that. 
And I had this moment of, I guess the best way I can put it is object permanence, right? Like I'm walking in and I thought, I don't want to make this sound too morbid. I thought someday when I pass away, my children are going to fight for those few paintings that are down at the bottom of that stack. And the video games, while they're an important part of my life, they're not going to care about those, right? The industry and video games move so fast that they won't even have the hardware to play these things on, right? They're going to be gone. And I thought, I want to create something that is sustaining. And definitely the, the traditional art that I've created will be those type of things that get passed down. But like I said, I'm a storyteller. And so I remember walking from my car to that, the front of the building there thinking, I'm going to write a book. That's really what it was. It wasn't uh, a point of I'm going to get published. I didn't set my goal that far out. I probably should have. would have gone a lot faster. But my goal at that time was I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write something that I can leave to my family and my kids that they can reference back and go, that's the book dad wrote. And maybe that's the book grandpa wrote. Like that's really what it was. I love that sense of permanence because I do think particularly with books that they do have that sense of, of permanence in our lives and, and for permanence for our readers and impacting all of those. But, you know, it wasn't just a direct thing. You know, you, you worked hard to get where you're going. So what steps did you take to get from that point that said, I'm going to write a book and here's a finished published book that people can read? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's um, – well, the first thing I did was terribly wrong – Terribly, horribly wrong, which is I found uh, an email from a very famous local Utah author. And even though I was living in Florida, I really liked her work. And I shot her an email and said, hey, would you like to read my manuscript? <laughs> which um, for those of you who are writing, that's not the way to start. Um, but I, I, the most important thing I did was sat down in front of a keyboard and just pounded keys. Right? I wrote a lot and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. Um, I didn't edit a lot initially. I thought that I was brilliant and that the very first words that I wrote were perfect. And if anyone dared to say they weren't, they were wrong and I was right. Um, and so obviously I had a big learning process to go through there. Um, but after, uh, like I said, sending out an email to a famous author and not getting a reply and and kind of digging around a little bit more, I did a little more research and I found out about things like query letters and agents and editors and kind of got – a little bit more uh, used to the vernacular of the writing world um, and realized that I had a lot to learn. Um, so that was a long time ago. Um, I've been writing pretty seriously for 15 years. I work a pretty demanding full-time job, so I don't work. At, at first, at least, I wasn't writing that as often as I should have. But I built some habits. Um, I, the first real habit I built was doing the NaNoWriMo thing, which I'm sure a lot of authors have gone through that, which is try to write a novel in, 50, in a month, 50,000 words in a month. Um, and I backed off a little bit from that pace um, and wrote a couple of books that I thought were better. And then I realized I needed to study. And you know, I, I enrolled in college courses at night and I, I took some classes from the Greenwich Writing Workshop, which were fascinating to me. Um, and just went through that process of sitting behind a keyboard and writing and holding myself to some pretty serious goals. And then, you know, after that, it was, you know, trying to find an agent and collecting rejection letters and not giving up and, you know, kind of being really bullheaded and saying, I'm going to do this. Like, I set a timeline for myself and said, if I'm not traditionally published, I'm going to independently publish. And, and I you know, like Douglas Adam, I watched that deadline, you know, the sound of it whizzing by multiple times. <laughs> and and so I, I eventually just decided I'm going to stick it out and find a traditional opportunity. And, and mostly that's because I work a lot and I just didn't think I'd have time to, to do the self-published thing. Um, 
so yeah, that was kind of my path. Lots of writing, lots of rejection. <laughs> I love particularly for our listeners to understand that, you know, this is really a complex process and and it isn't like the book just shows up complete. <laughs> there's lots of there's lots of things that go into it and lots of challenges and particularly for our young listeners, I think understanding that it's taking you 15 years to get to where you're going and lots of hard work in that process is really important for them to understand. So along those lines, tell us what do you find most challenging about the process, either when you're illustrating or you're just writing or both? What what are the challenges that you have to face with every single thing that you're working on? I think um, the illustration comes a little more natural to me. Um, so that that's rarely the challenge. Um, sometimes that becomes a time challenge, but you know the process of illustrating. I've been doing it for a long time, so I feel very I feel pretty efficient there. the The biggest challenge for me with writing isn't the ideas. Like everybody has a million ideas. I have seventy five books I'd like to write. Right? Uh, the The harder part of that process for me is the editing process. Deciding what are the best ideas to chase, even within a book, even within a chapter sometimes within a paragraph, like what's the right idea to chase and what ideas don't make the cut? You know, how do I make that cut? Um, luckily, it's nice to have other readers that can help me with that and editors and agents and people that can kind of hammer on me and help me do that because I'll write until I've written too much quite often. So editing, that's the toughest thing for me. I think that's the truth for most most authors is that editing is kind of the tricky part. Is, is there a slight difference between when you're writing fiction and when you're writing nonfiction that that process is a little bit different, particularly at that editing and cutting it down stage? Yeah, I think so. I, I think uh, nonfiction – well, I learned a lot of writing the nonfiction book about, about really what that was for me. But nonfiction's math, right? Like there's a right answer. There is a right answer. Um, there are different ways to tell that right answer, which is really what kind of becomes the art side of that. But uh, but nonfiction isn't, right? Like there's really no right answer. It does come down to some, you know, there's some standards and things that you should do to make the story run faster and to work better for you. But it's really a very subjective medium. So I think that's kind of the big difference for me is there is a right answer in nonfiction. And there's a wrong answer in my book. Somebody found it already. <laughs> are you uh, going to tell us? No, or we just, you, I'm not. You're going to have to go and find it. If somebody it. <laughs> else finds it, I'll be pretty impressed. No. <laughs> it wasn't go. terribly wrong, but, but I didn't name the character of a very famous TV show the wrong name. Oh, there we go. It. Okay, so now so everybody's going to rush out yes. and buy your book and figure out where that is. <laughs> well, we'll be looking forward to the great the great stories you have yet to tell. Thank you so much, Dustin. Thank you. It's been fun. Dustin Hansen is the author of Game On and the Microsaurus book series. Now, join me around the librarian's table as I talk with librarians from around Utah about children, books, and life at the library. Today, I'm in studio with Jess and Mikkel, student librarians, to talk about Aaron Becker's book, Journey. So today we're going to talk about Aaron Becker's wordless picture book series called Journey. There's three books, Journey, Quest, and Return in this trilogy. And it is just beautiful. It tells the story of a girl um, who finds this magical crayon and opens a doorway into this fantastical world and goes on an adventure. And she meets this boy who has 
a, um, a different colored crayon and just their adventures of fighting the bad guy. And, and it's so beautiful and it's so amazing how much we can understand without the actual words from these beautiful illustrations that, that Becker has given us. They are really amazing books. Mikkel, what what do you think strikes you the most about these books, particularly when you just open them up? What is the thing that jumps out to you and says, wow, in these books? All the drawings. I mean, it is just only drawings. Um, but what was kind of what Jess mentioned, what was so cool to me is it's been a long time since I've read a book without words. And it was cool to be able to read them. Like, I can tell like what they're feeling, and I can tell these guys are the bad guys, and we don't want them to like catch this bird, even though I didn't know why, but I knew that's what we wanted just because <laughs> of the portrayal, just because of the pictures. And I thought something else I really enjoyed about it was that I would just look at the book, like the whole entire picture, just for details, because it was so cool. And like, this doesn't even have to do with the plot, I'm sure, but it was just so pretty. I like wanted mm-hmm. to look at it all yeah I loved it all uh I was very impressed (laughs) yeah it's gorgeous and you know as I go back and read them I find you know first you see the girl's room and in her room is the hot air balloon she draws later the Mm. kind of Arabian night scene on her poster so it's interesting as you go back and read it you pick up on these details where you know I think that's the beautiful thing about any any book but especially wordless picture books is being able to just read read it over and over again and find new parts of the story and new intricacies. That, that's one of the things I really like about these illustrations is all of the illustrations are so detailed. But one of the things that, that Becker does really well is he uses color to tell you where he wants your eye to be, mm. right? So the girl has a red crayon mm-hmm. and the boy has a purple crayon. And like there's very saturated things that they draw. And they really want to draw your eye there. And then he uses yellows and other things to tell you who the evil guys are, right? Mm -hmm. You know that. So not only is the environment that he draws really, really detailed, but he uses color and the aspects of the drawings to really express the story in a unique way. And and the emotions, too. I mean, Mikkel, you mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of says, I could understand what they were feeling. I mean, how do you think he did that? How do you think he took the emotion and the feeling and put it in the pictures? I've not thought about that. But something that did come to mind, and when you mentioned that, is that is their imagination. Like, I could just feel um, the little girls and the boys' imagination, like, running and it was cool because sometimes I think especially as adults our imagination is very toned down we don't go Mm -hmm. to our little play worlds or whatever but as a child you can just totally be taken to a different world and I think with using color he definitely illustrates like when she's in you know her world in her home it's a lot of just like the grays with the occasional like her red crayon Mm -hmm. and then they go into this other world and it's a lot more color and that's when she's like drawing all her fun pictures with her crayon using her imagination yeah i loved that i loved i think what really when you open this book it's very monochromatic grayscale you're in the city it's very you know urban and and uh, the most magical moment for me is when she goes to the door she goes to the door and it's just like you said full saturation and it's whimsical and it's beautiful and and you feel that every time they step through the door, every time they leave their world and go into 
their imagination or this fantastical world. You know, and, and in the third book, um, in return, her father, there's a story arc where her father follows her in and is trying to reach out to her and relate to her. And it's almost like you get experience that all over again because he opens the door and I feel like it's even more beautiful, the perspective of an adult entering into this into this fantasy world. I think that's one of the unique things I love about these three picture books is because it really is a series in, mm-hmm. in almost the truest sense of the word. And we don't see that very often with picture books. With picture books that come in a series, it's usually because it shares a similar character, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. like it's Fancy Nancy or something <laughs> like that. So it shares a similar character. But each of the books stands completely alone, right? right. But with these three, they don't. You, you really have to read them in order, mm-hmm. particularly the first two, because if you if you don't read the first one, there's context that's missing, right? Which, which is really interesting to me that they truly are this connected series, which makes them, I think, unique in the field yeah. of children's literature. Yeah. And, you know, really, the second book literally picks up almost in the next panel of where the first book ended. The boy and the girl are on a bike. They've just become friends. And that momentum is carried through, which is really impressive because, I mean, when I discovered these books and bought them, the first three had already, the, the three had been out. Um, but, you know, to imagine waiting a year for the next one to come out and just be immediately brought back in to the story... It's very impressive. Yeah, I, I think it's amazingly impressive. I mean, Mikkel, what was your favorite part of in any of the three books? What what stood out to you as kind of your favorite? Oh, well, <laughs> so there wasn't one part in particular, I don't well, think. Well, all the parts. Tell but us about all the parts you like. My favorite thing about these books was like guessing what she was going to draw. Because it wasn't like what you would expect. Like, I need to cross the river and I'm draw a boat. Well, she did draw a boat at one of the parts. But she would draw the most, like, a mosquito carrying a swing or something to, like, fly oh, across. Oh, the dragonfly. Yeah. dragonfly. Right, right. Carrying the and swing. Like, I would not have drawn that. And so it was fun to, like, you could see her start to draw something. And then it would allow my imagination, like, okay, what do I think she's going to draw? Or what would I draw? And I could see myself, like, uh, when I have kids reading these, and be like, okay, like, what would you draw to escape the situation? And you, it's a very, you could think a lot in the yeah. books since there are no words. And you can kind of fill in. I loved just guessing what she's going to do with her crayon. I love that connection because that really is true. It's really that kind of anticipation. What do you see? And sometimes mm-hmm. you, well, you're you right. You can kind of see what she's going to draw or expect it. But there's other times that it's like, I totally had no clue <laughs> yeah. what you were going to draw here. Yeah. And so that kind of playfulness with the books, particularly with kids, I think is an amazing way to do it. And that's the joy of wordless picture books in all honesty is mm-hmm. you get to – You get to tell your own story, right? You get to add things because of that. These are amazing, amazing books. So, Mikhail, as we close up today on our fun little chat, introducing these great books to to great people, what would you want people to know? I mean, what what is your hook to make them go out and either buy these books or go to the library and pick them up? What what would you what you hook them with? (laughs) I think it's becoming a lost art. I mean, just having to create your own story and being able to enjoy such beautiful art in a children's book that both the children and the adults will thoroughly enjoy from maybe for different reasons. Um, But I loved, I loved looking at these. I was very surprised at how much I loved these books um, because they were fun and um, caught my interest, even though I'm not like a super artsy person. 
Very cool. All right, Jess, what, what do you say? I would say, I mean, this is a great inspiration for children who love to draw. I mean, kids draw all the time and, you know, trying to express what's in their head and what they see, how they interpret their world. So I think this would just be a great addition to any library at home or school or, you know, public library for just fueling that imagination. And, you know, beginner readers having positive reading experiences because they don't have any words to read. And so there's no reason for them to not be able to sit down and read this series by themselves and enjoy it and be lost in their own world. Great way to sum it up. Perfect. Well, thank you, Mikkel. Thank you, Jess, for our fun book chat. So everybody is now going to rush out, I hope, and get this great, great (laughs) picture book series and have it as part of their reading. Thank you so much. I'd like to thank Jess and Mikkel for joining me around the librarian's table. We've had a great show today. We talked with Dewan Combs about classroom practices. Then we spoke with John Cox about the autistic spectrum. Our last interview was with author and illustrator Dustin Hansen, and we chatted about his writer's journey. If you missed any of today's show, or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on the BYU Radio app or at byuradio.org, as well as on most podcast apps and websites. If you want to know more about what we do here at Worlds Awaiting, feel free to follow our Instagram at Worlds Awaiting. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger. Our student production assistant is Sarah Byington. And our technical advisor is Braden Flint. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to the worlds that are waiting next week. Thank you for exploring with us. Mm